We're going to look at one verse, the twelfth verse. You probably have figured it out what our theme is this morning by the hymns that we have sung, even by my prayer. It's got to do with the Word of God and its place in our life and why it's important to us. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews, the fourth chapter, the twelfth verse, and in just a moment I'll read it to you. Once you find your place, put your finger in your Bible and and look up. And I would like you to keep your Bibles open so you can look at each one of the phrases in this verse that we're going to deal with this morning. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, you've made us rational people and we are educated folks. We've lived life and have experiences and you'd think, Lord, that we'd be able to comprehend just about anything that comes our way. And yet, we've already learned when we open the Bible, we need your help. We need your help to see the depth and breadth of what you're thinking and what you're wanting to communicate to us. And we need your help, dear God, that when we leave this place, we'll remember it in the days to come. And we need your help, dear God, that we might want to live out what we learn and what we are inspired by. So, Father, we ask for your help, which is so very necessary to this whole process. Please bless us as we read and bless us, dear God, as we walk from our church and apply it in our life. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Joe Overton. Any of you ever heard of Joe Overton? I dare say most of us don't know him by name. He died back in 2003 in an airplane crash. But while he was alive, particularly during most of the last decade of his life, he worked with what we would typically call a think tank. He was in a an organization that would stop and try to figure out what's going on in our culture, why people do what they do and where it's going to take us. And he was very effective. And at one point in the about three or four years before his death, he came up with a principle. It's called the Overton Window. And I want to explain to you what that principle is because you and I are being influenced by it every day of our life. The Overton Principle. Let me give you an example that Joe gave. Back in the 1980s, the state of Michigan was struggling with all sorts of educational things. And if you think of a spectrum from one extreme to another extreme, over on this one extreme, the governor and the legislator in the state of Michigan were trying to decide whether they were going to allow a voucher system, whether they were going to embrace homeschooling, private schools, charter schools, and they were looking at all these variations. On the other extreme, they were saying and hearing a lot of people say, no, we're not going to consider any of that. We have government-run schools end of the conversation. Joe looked at that, and he came to what is an obvious conclusion, but it sure escaped us for a long time. He said, you know, the folks who are elected to office typically want to be reelected. Is that news to anybody? (laughs) 
I think if I was in office, I'd probably want to be reelected also. And he said because of that, they are going to usually act within a pretty small window of decision-making. And that's going to be influenced by public opinion, which influences whether they get reelected or not. So the Oberton window is this very small area on a very large scope where we're going to have decisions made in our country, sometimes for the wrong reasons. Well, as he developed that and started to talk about it and write about it, which he did, someone realized how true that was. And if you think back, even when we were young, there were evidences of that, always have been in our culture. But we've got a new dimension that's been added. We have organizations today that are committed to figuring out what that scope is and figuring out how to influence public opinion so the window of decision-making can move. And there are positive forces and some pretty negative forces that are trying to win our opinion and trying to move that window of decision-making. Part of the problem with all of that is that when the negative forces start to influence us, we become morally and ethically more liberal. We move into sin oftentimes. And during your lifetime and mine, we have seen evidence of that in things like abortion, which at one time was unheard of in this country, and now is commonplace in almost all of our communities. The guidelines for divorce. Oftentimes, the two guidelines we have in Scripture are ignored completely. And the sentiment of people in our country has changed. You can look at all sorts of other things, other social issues. It was reported that yesterday one of the Supreme Court justices, Ginsburg, performed a same-sex marriage. Folks, that is a stretch. Opinion in our country has changed so much that someone in that high office would step out and would perform that marriage. So my point is very simple, to realize that this window of decision-making is being influenced by public opinion, and public opinion is by being influenced by some people who would like us to think like they think. And in all of that, there's little or no consideration of what God would will for his creation. So the title of my sermon has to do with why is the Bible important? What is its place in our life? And I have a thesis. My thesis is this. It is absolutely the inherent, inerrant word of God, an absolute rule of faith and practice in people's lives, and it will never fail us. Not once. A sovereign God has spoken because he loves us. And we have the choice to be influenced by God in his word 
or to fall victim to some other folks who do not have a biblical foundation and are trying to get us to believe something else. I thought when I prepared my sermon that might be an oversimplification. I don't think it is. I think that's exactly where we live today. So what I would like to do is I'd like to show you what God's all about when it comes to his word. And there's this one verse in Hebrews, and there are a lot of other verses that I could have gone to, but this is one that kind of encapsulates the significance of the word of God. Let me read it to you. It's in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, the twelfth verse. Listen very carefully. God is about to speak to us. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. The first question I had was, what is the Word of God? And if you look through the Bible, you'll see, particularly in the New Testament, there are 39 references where it talks about the Word of God. And each one of those references, with one exception, the Word of God is that which God has uttered and it has been written. And we have it recorded for us. There is an exception. The exception is in Revelation 19. And the one who is riding on the white horse in that descriptive passage is called the Word of God. You know who that was? That was Jesus. God. When Jesus speaks, he's God. He has spoken to us. So what we have is God's inspired Word And we have the opportunity to live by it and to believe it. It's so very important. When I open this Bible to teach or preach, that I say what I said just a moment ago. Listen very carefully. God is about to speak to us. And when you grasp that concept, and you open your Bible with a ready ear wanting to hear God speak to you, this whole experience of studying the Word of God will change. It'll become very personal. And you'll be allowing the Holy Spirit to work in you if you come with expectation. For he truly comes to speak to us. If you look on down a bit more, he describes it. He says, it's living and active. I sat down and made a list, and I'm not going to read the list to you, of of religious books that are available today who talk about people like Mary Baker Eddy, the uh, Christian science founder, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, Scientology, and the list goes on and on. The Book of Mormon. And people read those documents much like we read our Bible. And they read them to gain truths. I challenge you to read Ron Hubbard's material. It makes no human sense. I read one of his foundational books. 
It's hard to believe that celebrities could buy into what he says and the contradictions. But you can look at any religious group, and they're going to have some kind of documentation they turn to. You know what makes ours different? It was inspired by God. You know what makes it different? He superintended the mind of the people that he used as instruments to utter these words and got these words recorded for us. You know what makes it different? It's always true. Every time. You know what else makes it different? When and only when you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ does the Holy Spirit who oversaw the writing of Scripture now dwell in you. And when you take that which is inspired by Him and take a person who's indwelled by the Holy Spirit and you put the two together, suddenly we can begin to hear the living Word of God. It's not just a book. It's not just words. There's a power in it, and it's the kind of power that brings people under conviction. It's the kind of power that helps us understand the mind of God in ways that we would never understand. It's a way for us to get to the point where we start to understand each other and the world we live in and what God's doing in all of this. And when you walk away, having read it, under the power of the Holy Spirit, evidence that it is alive and active is that it will change you. Not just intellectually, but it will change who you are. So it certainly is alive and active. It also says of itself that it's a double-edged sword. It's interesting that a lot of armies and a lot of people have swords for generations and generations throughout the human experience. I don't know why it took so long for them to learn they could hone both edges. But many, many swords only had one sharp edge on them. One of the noted changes that took place was with the Scottish. And they're one of the first who actually honed both sides or both edges of their sword, which meant they had two cutting surfaces, two piercing surfaces. And the Bible says of itself that it is like a two-edged sword. What it's trying to communicate is that it can get inside of us and touch us. It's not just an external tool. It's a tool that impacts us. He goes on to say that it pierces us. You know, these are pretty descriptive phrases, aren't they? We all understand double-edged swords. We know what the word active and living means. And now he says, and the word of God pierces. What he's trying to say is it gets in where we live and breathe. And it has an effect on us. Our thoughts. Have you ever thought that your thoughts are private just to you? Not so. A couple of interesting things about thoughts. You have a thought and you entertain it long enough and it finds expression in your daily life. And somebody else will see it. You might even see it and realize there's something in your heart that has made its way into your thoughts and is now finding expression in your behavior. Sometimes that's wonderful. Sometimes that's beautiful. 
Sometimes that's ugly. And sometimes that's not pretty at all. And what he's saying is, when you read this book, and the Holy Spirit's at work in you as he was in the writers, you're going to begin to have your thoughts challenged. And the Lord is going to say, I don't want you to think this way. I want you to look at things this way. Instead of saying, this is my enemy as an example, and turning from that person and having no contact, when you read the word, he says, no, no. I want you to have contact. I want you to love that person. Now, who on our own would ever come up with that? We wouldn't, would we? But you see, the inspired word of God is calling us to conform to the image of Christ And Jesus did that over and over and over in his ministry. So now you and I are being called to think about things differently. Talks about our attitudes. You know what's right? The way we were raised. What mama and daddy taught us verbally and non-verbally at home. And we come out of that home environment having not tested, not thought about a lot of those things, And we become young adults, and we're young adults who are in some way a carbon copy of what we learned at home. And we take that and we start to apply it in life, and some interesting things happen. We realize, oftentimes, as we mature and have additional experiences and become a Christian, that some of what we assumed was right wasn't right. It just plain wasn't right. I had an opportunity to be on a debating team. I was never a good debater, but to be on a debating team in college. And some folks came down from a rather noted university in the north, and we went through a weekend of debating on a social issue. And right after the first presentation by our team, when their first person began to speak, I listened, and I realized I was wrong and they were right. Now, folks, that's not good when you're on a debating team. But I realized something I had believed all of my life. When I heard their arguments, I realized I was wrong. And I've never held that position again. When the Lord deals with us and starts to deal with our attitudes, our attitudes affect how we relate to other people. And what God is wanting us to do is to do it more like Jesus did it not just like our neighbor or our parents or someone else that we've experienced. So he gives us his inerrant word as an example of how we ought to live. One of the things that happens when our thoughts and our attitudes, and we have already touched on it twice today in the liturgy and singing, one of the things that happens is God brings us under conviction. When you open his word and you start reading in the power of the spirit, if there's an overt sin in our life, God may just slam dunk us. He may grab hold of us and say, that's not where you ought to be. And we'll hear it loud and clear. Other times he takes it and puts it into our process and it starts to ferment. And as we mature, we come to the conclusion that a change ought to take place when we have a sin that we're abiding, when we're involved in something that we try to keep secret from other people. We never succeed in doing that, incidentally. 
Oftentimes, a loving God will take his word and bring us under conviction. And we'll walk away from that encounter saying, God has just told me not to do that anymore. Some of you had that experience. That's a loving God at work. Other times, what he does is he works in our life gradually, not just through one encounter. You know, when we, like Adam and Eve, came into this world, Adam and Eve came sinless and became sinners. You and I were born into this world sinners. Children of Adam and Eve in that sense. So our propensity is to always think about self. Our propensity is to somehow advance ourselves, even at the cost of other people. And all of us, no matter who we are, struggle with that at one level or another. What happens when you read the word of God? He tells us we need to surrender. He encourages us to surrender to him and allow him to not just be our savior, but to be our Lord. I find it interesting very often we say, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And Savior is in bold print, and Lord is not in bold print. And we walk away saying, yes, I've accepted Jesus. And you say, well, is it your intention now to let him be Lord of your life? And most folks haven't thought about that. But you see, they go hand in hand because if you surrender to the Lord and confess that you're a sinner and ask him to save you through his own shed blood, which he will do willingly and lovingly, he wants you to walk the walk also. He would be your Lord in your life. And how better to know what he wants you to do than to read this book? It explains that to us. It brings us under conviction. He has a a phrase at the end of that 12th verse where he says, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That judgment sometimes is pretty harsh. But do you know why that judgment is harsh? Because when we are in sin we are moving into a darkness that has no limits. And that darkness can make us a captive. It can make our mind a captive. It can become a habit that we don't break. And as a captive, we lose ourselves. And we're not the people God wants us to be. So his word comes to judge us right where we're living. And to help us to realize the change needs to take place. Isn't it interesting how we can face up to something that needs to change in our life? Something that's a spiritual roadblock in our spiritual growth. And we'll think the thought and we'll maybe declare we're going to do it. And the next moment we're right back into the world. And all those rules have changed for us, and we're not thinking about God and thinking about what he wants us to do. I believe if you're in church on Sunday morning and you're involved in Sunday school, which is Bible study, and you come to work worship and we look at a passage together, I believe if you're in one of our home fellowship groups or one of our Bible studies, 
I believe that you will be getting the fortification you will need on a daily basis to be what God wants you to be because you'll be under the influence of his word. But folks, if you're not under the influence of his word or if you're depending on 25 or 30 minutes on Sunday morning when we're together, it won't work. You're being bombarded, absolutely bombarded with people who want to change how you think. And you have to do something if you're going to cope with that to counter it. So part of what we're all about here at the church is seeking to give us the tools to deal with that. You've heard me talk over and over again about the Berean Sunday School model. Simply, it's an in-depth study of the Word with the understanding that God will use that to change you and to change me. It's one of the tools. I encourage you to expose yourself to that tool. you got some pretty committed folks in our church who want to help us all do that. You're going to notice something if you haven't already. Of course, you have to come to Sunday school to notice this. When I'm not teaching, I go to Sunday school. When I was traveling around preaching in different churches, I think without exception I always got there early enough to go to Sunday school. You know why I did that? Just like you, I need to be exposed to this. And I want someone to help me understand it. And someone to challenge me. And I'd like to see it challenge my thoughts and my intentions and pierce all the way into my heart. I encourage you to get a passion to allow the Holy Spirit the freedom to continue to grow you through his inspired word. What a gift he's given us. You can look at this gift, and you can look at prayer, and you can look at communion, and you see the three major tools that God uses to communicate with us and to minister to us. In just a moment, we're going to come to the table. Please know that the same power is there that's in his word, that's in prayer. And we're going to experience all three this day. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, dear God, that you minister to us I thank you, dear God, that you love us and care about us. I ask you, Father, to set these elements aside this morning. And I pray that you would then use them through the power of your Holy Spirit to work in our life and to help us to grow. Father, bless our time around the table. For I ask for that blessing in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Listen to these words. Beloved in the Lord, hear what gracious words our Savior Christ saith unto all who truly turn unto him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Doesn't that sound good? Who doesn't want that rest? We've had the unrest. What a promise. He says, take my yoke upon you. That's an intentional act. 
and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your soul. An absolute promise. I am the bread of life, and he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. No sin is so great that a gracious and loving God won't forgive you. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hymn number 413. The first three verses. <laughs> 